0: Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Last time we surveyed 500 years of New Testament textual criticism. Today we address the process by which these scholars have done and continue to do their work. We'll see how they weigh internal and external evidence. We'll cover reasoned eclecticism, the refined documentary approach, the computer-driven coherence-based genealogical method, and don't worry if these terms all sound meaningless to you right now. That's why we're going to cover these in this episode. Lastly, we'll see what resources you can access, whether you have Greek knowledge or not. We have lots of excellent English resources available these days to find out the inside scoop on what's going on with a particular New Testament verse. Here now is episode 339, part 10 of our How We Got the Bible class, New Testament Textual Criticism. Last time, we looked at the 500-year history of how textual scholars have gone about reconstructing the New Testament. Today, I want to get into the methods that they use to do that. And this is important for you to understand. I liken this this class period right now to a scene from the Karate Kid movie, the original, where Mr. Miyagi, this old wise man, is teaching this young punk teenager from New Jersey how to fight. And instead of actually teaching him moves, he says, I want you to wax the car. And so he waxes it on and then he waxes it off and paint the fence. He go, paints it up and he paints it down and you know, scrub the deck and do all this manual labor. And, the, and, the, and this teenage kid from Jersey, those of you who have seen the movie, he's so frustrated. He's like, this is so dumb. Why am I doing all your housework? I'm supposed to be, you're supposed to be teaching me how to fight. And then, uh, this chilling moment in the movie happens when Mr. Miyagi says, alright, show me wax the car. And Mr. Miyagi throws a punch at him and the kid, whoosh, blocks the punch. And, um, so I think this is really where this is going to happen for us, especially next time, uh, where we get into specific examples of verses that are different in the manuscripts that make a difference in our translations. But we are still in the wax on, wax off phase right now, and I don't want you to get discouraged by any of the um, technical terminology that we need to use as we make our way through here, but it is important for you so that you can have that Karate Kid moment yourself in our next class together. So, to get started, do you remember episode 4? Episode 4 we looked at determining the best and I mentioned these are all the different kinds of scribal errors that somebody could possibly make. And we looked at all these different ones in light of the transmission of the Old Testament. Well, as it turns out, the New Testament is not that different. There are some of these that are no longer relevant for the New Testament. For example, confusion of similar letters. I mean, you have that maybe a little bit with Greek, but it's just nothing like Hebrew. Hebrew, like all the letters are, you know, variations on a box. So, I mean, some of them are are so incredibly similar. Uh, Whereas in Greek, they tend to be a little bit more different. There are some ambiguities, but not nearly as much. Word division is as much of an issue or wrong vowels. The vowels are the same size as regular. Uh, letters in Greek as opposed to Hebrew which was originally written without vowels. And then euphemisms is not really something that comes up with with Greek. So what do we have? We have abbreviations, the end of the word that looks the same, the beginning of the word that looks the same. We have skipping over some words or repeating some words. Transposition is moving words and letters around and then uh, errors of hearing, memory, Then you have sometimes scribes will make corrections, and uh, sometimes those corrections are good, and sometimes they're bad, but there certainly can be errors. And then you have intentional omissions or additions. So really there's two different kinds of scribal errors when we talk about the New Testament. One is unintentional scribal errors, and the other is intentional scribal errors. And the intentional ones would be corrections and then omissions or additions. Philip Comfort puts it this way, on the subject of conflation and interpolation. A conflation is the scribal technique of resolving a discrepancy between two or more variant readings by including all of them. For example, in John 134, some manuscripts read Son of God and other manuscripts read Chosen of God. A few manuscripts conflate the two readings and say Chosen, Son of God. So you see what happened there? They took Son, they took Chosen, and they put both in together. That's what we call conflation. Interpolations are scribal additions to the manuscript that attempt to clarify the meaning of the text. For example, in 1 Corinthians 3.3, the best textual evidence supports the reading jealousy and strife in a list of vices. Certain scribes couldn't resist adding another vice found in a similar list in Galatians 5.20, so they added divisions to the list. And so this is the sort of thing that we find in the manuscripts unintentional errors, intentional errors and this brings us all to the question of well how in the world do these textual critics, now these are not people criticizing the Bible but analyzing the Bible to try to arrive at the earliest and best readings of any particular verse, how do they go about practicing textual criticism, making the judgment calls on what to do? Well there are two main strategies. First of all there's external evidence and second of all there's internal evidence. External evidence is looking at certain manuscripts as being more legitimate, more important than others. For example, Tischendorf, just after he finds found Sinaiticus, he just he just like judge everything based on Sinaiticus. This is the New Testament. Like maybe it has some mistakes, but other than that, like this is pretty much it. And so uh, he would use that as the um, measuring stick for other manuscripts that he happened to have. Westcott and Hort kind of did a similar thing with Vaticanus, where they're like, no, Vaticanus is is really where it's at. So like if it doesn't line up with that, then it must be an error. And uh, so how do you do that? Well, you, you figure out these different manuscripts, you figure out which ones are the best, and then you judge everything else based on them. That's external evidence. Then you have internal evidence. Internal evidence is where you look within the manuscript itself to see what you can figure out. So here's an example of some criteria some rules of textual criticism. And there are more than this. This It's just a simplified list for you. Number one, if you have two variations that differ on a particular verse, right, the shorter reading is preferred. Number two, prefer harder readings. Scribes were more likely to smooth things out than to make them harder, more difficult. Number three, prefer reading that accounts for others. Number four, preferring reading that conforms to an author's style and vocabulary. If you have a variant, uh, let's say the example of Jesus Christ, Every let's say in an epistle, everywhere else in the epistle it says Christ Jesus, or it just says Christ, or it says Lord, and in this one place it says Jesus Christ instead of Christ Jesus, you would say, hmm, that's unusual. Now, if there aren't differences in the manuscripts, you wouldn't you wouldn't be bothered by it. It's just it is what it is. But if you have other manuscripts that have Christ Jesus there instead of Jesus Christ, you'd be like, huh. And obviously this is the kind of variation that's very insignificant. But I'm using it as an example for you. Number five, prefer reading that lacks conformity with parallels, the Old Testament, liturgies, later doctrinal concerns. Uh, This is the idea of scribes wanting to change things to conform them to other standards that they have, whether it's an Old Testament quotation, another gospel that's recording the same incident of their own personal church experience or doctrinal concerns. So this is uh, just five quickies from, uh, adapted from Eldon Epps' article, The Eclectic Method in the New Testament, Textual Criticism. Uh, two scholars could look at the same text, the same issue, and come to two different conclusions, even though they're using the same criteria of discernment. That's problematic, wouldn't you say? So say, for example, a reading is longer, but conforms with the author's style and vocabulary. One scholar might say, well, the shorter reading is preferred, so I'm going to go with the shorter reading. And the other scholar is going to say, yeah, but the longer reading conforms with the the way this author writes other places. So we're going to, I want to go with the longer reading. How are we going to decide between that? And uh, this has led to a number of different strategies. But one I want to mention here is called reasoned eclecticism. This is, in the words of Philip Comfort, the evaluation of internal evidence by these criteria is not immune to problems of subjectivity. Quite often two textual critics using the same list of principles to examine the same variant unit will not agree because each textual critic has his or her own subjective biases. And this is really the issue, bias. It's hard to fight your own bias. Neither external evidence nor internal evidence can be given absolute sway in all circumstances. Textual critics must always operate with one eye on the external evidence and one eye on the internal evidence. And so this is the strategy known as reasoned eclecticism, really sophisticated sounding name, but basically you're looking at what manuscripts are out there, what is the quality of those manuscripts, what is the age of those manuscripts and of the readings that they contain. And then you're also looking at how within the unit itself, within the variation itself, how can we see this as fitting with this particular place in the Bible that we find it? And uh, is, it, is it something that we can just rule out based on common sense that, you know, the scribe just skipped from one thing to another or added in some extra words? Or is it something that's more complicated that we need to think more deeply about? In addition to this, Phil Comfort does go another further step into what he calls refining the documentary approach and he does this by privileging premier manuscripts. He writes, an eclectic approach that gives greater weight to external documentary evidence is best. Such an approach labors to select a premier group of manuscripts as the primary witnesses for certain books and or sections of the New Testament, not for the entire New Testament, since each book of the New Testament was, in its earliest form, a separate publication. Once the best manuscripts for each book or group of books in the New Testament are established, these manuscripts need to be pruned of obvious errors and singular variants. He's saying that what you wanna do is you wanna find your absolute best manuscripts, like for example, P75, super nice manuscript, every reason to think that it contains you know, very high accuracy rate of uh, integrity of, of the text, right? It doesn't have the whole Bible, but it has a good portion of the Bible. So Comfort's going to say, all right, P75 is, is like a star manuscript. It's a premier manuscript. But like there are some obvious mistakes in there. So he prunes those mistakes from that manuscript and then uses that manuscript to judge other manuscripts that contain the same verses in it. He goes on, then these should be The manuscripts used for determining the most likely original wording. The burden of proof on textual critics is to demonstrate that the best manuscripts, when challenged by the testimony of other witnesses, do not contain the original wording. Of course, internal criticism will have to come into play when documentary evidence is evenly divided, or when some feature of the text strongly calls for it. And on occasion, it must be admitted that two or more readings are equally good candidates for being deemed the original wording. So this strategy actually harkens back more to what we see, we saw with Tischendorf and Westcott and Hort, where Comfort is arguing for selecting certain manuscripts. Of course, like what Comfort has available to him is 130 plus papyri that Tischendorf didn't have, that Westcott and Hort didn't have. So instead of picking Sinaiticus or Vaticanus as his like star manuscripts, he's he's going to recognize those as like star manuscripts. But then he's also got superstar manuscripts that go back even earlier and what he's doing is he's constantly privileging older quality because you have old sloppy stuff too and he's not he's not going to include those as premier old super quality well done manuscripts he's going to prioritize them and then judge others based on that and uh, so that is the style that we see with the Tyndale Greek New Testament very similar kind of style where they're only going to look at certain of those manuscripts in how they get things done we'll come more to that in just a little while here all right so you might be asking yourself all right sean this this is all sounding very complicated especially when you've got all these thousands of manuscripts you have all these thousands of places where there are little differences between them can't we just use computers that's a good question can't we just use computers well since the 1980s the INTF has worked on that very issue under Kurt Alan's leadership. I mean, think about it, the 80s. What was a computer even like in the 80s? I mean, it was big, had that big bulky monitor, right, that clicky keyboard. And originally, I don't even think we had a mouse on our most of our computers back then, right? Maybe, uh, maybe if you had, like, an Apple, you would have a mouse. But, like, a lot of the regular PCs didn't have... You know, so, like, this is the kind of computer we're talking about. And uh, it's very, very basic. The Internet's not invented yet. A lot of stuff isn't invented yet, but there is, like, an intuition that Elon has in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, especially coming in, in the 80s and then into the 90s, that, hey, we need to take advantage of this tool to help us figure this out because none of us is smart enough or has enough time to keep all of this in our heads. All of these differences, all of these manuscripts, it's just too much for any one person to handle. We need to put them into the computer. So Alan had traipsed around the world photographing these manuscripts in the 60s and the 70s, had brought them all back with him to Munster, and had put them on these uh, microfilms. But now, his big idea and the INTF's big idea was, all right, let's transcribe them, let's type these manuscripts in, because they're pictures, but we can type them in to the computer and use the computer to start help us collating, uh, lining things up by verse, for example, with these manuscripts, and help us to figure out where, let's say we have a fragment, and we're not sure what part of the Bible it goes to, we can use a, com- a computer can figure that out in like a few seconds. Whereas for a person, like if I give you like half of a word, can you tell me like every place in the New Testament that occurs? <laughs> right, That would be really challenging. And uh, so the, they start using computers to help figure things out. And later on the INTF, developed a computer program to analyze the variants. And uh, Barbara Alon supervised the publication of the first, what's called the Editio Critical Mayor in the year 1997, the Epistle of James. And here's a little bit about that from their own website. The Institute for the New Testament Textual Research, INTF, as it's called in German, uh, in Munster, is currently working on an entirely new edition of the Greek language New Testament, the so-called Editio Critica Maior, which will document the history of the Greek text through the first millennium on the basis of Greek manuscripts, old translations, and New Testament citations in ancient Christian literature that are of significance to the history of transmission. This edition, therefore, also provides information for answering further questions. How does the text change over the course of history, and why? How was the text received in the early Christian era? The original biblical text was also reconstructed once more in this connection with a newly developed method, which is called CBGM. I'm going to get into that in a minute. In this process, it became evident that the existing text, the NA27, required extensive modification, which is what led to the... NA28, the Nestle Elan 28th edition of 2012. So the INTF has this big project. It starts in the year 1997, abbreviated to ECM, but it's the major critical edition is what they're calling it. I mean, we're talking about $100 or more per volume, or maybe a little less, um, and thick volumes. And you're getting just like the Epistle of James. And what's in there? Well, it's the text that they think is the correct text, but then there's a whole list of manuscripts that support various readings all throughout, based on a thousand years of Christian history. So the INTF is using computers, and they're using, and and they're on this project of the ECM that started in 1997. And what they say is that they're going to finish it by the year 2030. They've already made some significant progress. That's why we have a 28th edition instead of a 27th edition, because they already changed some things about 34 changes and then um, we can expect more changes to be coming out in subsequent edition in the future. Now I want to get into their method with you a little bit because it is new and a lot of people are confused by it and some people criticize it and and I want you to be aware of what it what it is. It's called coherence based genealogical method and um, this is abbreviated to the CBGM. Here's a little statement by Peter Gurry, who did his dissertation on the CBGM. And this is the method, once again, that they're using in the computers at the INTF. The CBGM offers a unique application of computer technology to the long-standing problems presented by contamination. The CBGM offers one of the most significant recent developments in New Testament textual studies and deserves greater attention from those who study the Greek New Testament. I want to talk to you about contamination. Contamination is uh, where you're trying to figure out, does this manuscript depend on this manuscript over here? It's all about genealogy, right? So how how do you figure out contamination? Contamination is where you can't say this one just depends on this other one here because this manuscript actually has dependencies on three different manuscript traditions because let's say he used uh, the Gospels from one manuscript, but that manuscript didn't have the Epistles of Paul in it. So then he used a different one for the Epistles of Paul or maybe used two or three or four different manuscripts to create his manuscripts. That's what we call contamination. So we're not talking about mistakes or anything like that. We're talking about a confusion of the transmission that makes it hard to figure out Wait, which one of these was before the other one? Because a lot of times we really don't know that. And that's the whole goal of coherence-based genealogical method is to figure out the genealogy of the manuscripts. You, you know about genealogy, right? The way it works for humans, you have two parents and they each have two parents and you can trace your family tree way back. Well, this is kind of like the opposite of that. You have an original gospel of Mark. Then, that gospel was copied and you know multiple copies were made. Many of those didn't survive. I don't think any of those survived, to be honest, but who knows. And then um, copies were made of those copies and then copies were made. So if you think about it, there are, when it comes to New Testament manuscripts, there are ancestors and descendants. And so what these uh, scholars are doing with the computer is they're using it to figure out how do we trace the text backwards to its initial text. That's the term they like to use for that. So it's really a fascinating endeavor. Some people are a little concerned about this technique and they're not convinced that it's really working as well as its advocates are saying it's working. Um, But regardless of people's criticism, it's going forward at full speed. So um, And really, the the main issue, one of the main issues, other than contamination, one of the main issues that the CBGM technique is answering to is this phenomenon where you find a late manuscript. Let's say you find a 9th century manuscript, chances are that that is going to have lots of scribal errors in it that have been collected over many centuries, and it's going to be less accurate than, say, a 3rd century manuscript. However, imagine this scenario for a moment. Let's say, in the ninth century, the scribe, who was probably a monk, probably very concerned, very focused, has a 2nd century manuscript in front of him. Let's say he has an accurate 2nd century manuscript in front of him, it's falling apart, it's about to perish, and he says, I'm going to copy this in perfect cursive, minuscule print, on this beautiful vellum manuscript, dyed purple or whatever. I'm just making this up. but like let's just say that's a scenario, right? So that ninth century manuscript could actually could potentially contain a second century text, even though it's from on a ninth century piece of leather. You see what I'm saying? This is the sort of thing that CBGM is designed to take into account. because they're not interested in the age of the manuscripts. They're interested in the influence of the text itself. So the, the text is, in a sense, divorced from the physical reality that encased it, and then the text is lined up against other texts, and the computer analyzes what it calls coherence, which is another way to say similarities and differences between these manuscripts. So they have pre-genealogical coherence, which, which is where they take two manuscripts and they compare them, and they're like, all right, what percentage of these two manuscripts is the, is the same, what percentage is different? And on average is something like 87% of any two manuscripts is uh, the, the same, uh, but then they look at that 13% and they're like, all right, so let's go case by case and see in each case where there's a difference, can we establish a direction, uh, what's called a stemma, a direction of flow, is this manuscript more likely, is this reading in this text more likely to be an ancestor or a descendant of this other text. And that's where, not the computer, but the scholar goes through and makes those decisions and feeds them into the computer. Then the computer generates a more sophisticated basically family tree of the situation that the scholar can then work with and tweak and so on. So it's really not an automated system CBGM. It's more like a, a computer and human synthesis kind of situation. And uh, really is an interesting new technology. Now, as I mentioned before, this is fairly new technology. It's mostly just 21st century. And really all they had accomplished was what they call the Catholic epistles or uh, what uh, many of us who are not Catholics would call the general epistles, like James, Jude, 1st, J- 2nd, and 3rd John, 1st, 2nd Peter, these kinds of epistles. Um, they, they have finished working through those and as soon as they did finish working through those, it prompted the next the next version of the Nestle-Elan text, okay? So, versions 1 through 27 of the Nestle-Elan, going way back to the early 20th century, right up until the end of the 20th century, these were all done by humans, okay? And then the, the 28th edition, which the only changes are in these general epistles, that was done with a human, human computer working together using this method called coherence genealogical based methods. So um, it really is interesting. You, you can get access to it for free online and uh, you can play around with it. It's not the easiest website to work with. It's definitely made for super nerds that have the patience and the time and don't need like instructions and pretty icons and things like that. It's very, uh, very rudimentary in that sense, but very powerful as well. Now they have finished uh, the Book of Acts. They've just finished that and now they're working on the Gospel of John. So, like I said, the, they plan to finish this, the ECM, the entire New Testament, uh, by the year 2030, and this is going to lead to some new English translations, I'm sure of it, uh, which, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I know, like, all of us, we, we have, like, our Bible version we love and we use and we, and we wake up and we, we spend time with God reading the Scriptures, and, you know, we, we love that version, Right? But, are, you know, what do you want? You want tradition or authenticity? What do you want? You know, like, why wouldn't we use computers? Use computers at your job, so we can't use computers to figure out what is the earliest and best reading for the New Testament? It makes sense to me, but not everyone's convinced of that. The Tyndale House people, as I mentioned before, this is the Tyndale House uh, New Testament here, the Tyndale House people, uh, Peter Williams and Dirk Yonkind, write, we are also aware, this is from their explanation in the Tyndale House Greek New Testament, we are also aware that our focus on early Greek manuscript testimony differs from recent trends shown in the editing of the Catholic epistles in the Editio Critica Mayor, produced under the auspices of the Institute for New Testamentalica Text Forschung in Munster, INTF. We acknowledge that, at times, a late manuscript may contain a text that is logically prior to and ancestral to that in the earliest extant manuscripts. That was my example earlier. However, our aim has been to produce a text with a high degree of directly verified antiquity so that users of this edition will have the benefit of knowing that any reading printed in this text rests on early testimony. What the Tendale House people are saying is, we don't buy the CBGM. We are not going to base our Greek New Testament on the text as an abstracted reality from the manuscripts that then the computer is going to analyze and determine who were the ancestors and the descendants. We're not going in for that. We want to know that the manuscript is from the first five centuries. So they're not looking at the second five centuries very much, maybe a little bit, but really focusing on the first five centuries that they're going to generally exclude that ninth century scenario where you have a later manuscript that is written uh, an accurate copy of a super early manuscript. They're they're just not going to worry about that. They're just going to focus on the early stuff and put their their weight on that. And so this is presented to us. Now we have two very different styles of Greek New Testaments. And to be honest, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing to have competition and to have people approaching it from different angles and again we're not talking about huge difference. You're not going to like read in one of these Greek New Testaments that suddenly Judas is the good guy and he saved the day and in the other one um, you're not going to read that Jesus you know was a womanizer or something bizarre. These are not the kinds of differences I'm talking about. I'm talking about spelling differences, I'm talking about word order and in some cases about five percent, I'm going to get into the exact numbers in just a second with you, We're we're talking about things where we really aren't certain about which way it should go. So, let me talk to you about how you can access this information. First of all, English, right? Let's say you just you read English and you you want to get in on the game. You want to know, Sean, what are the manuscript differences? How do I know which is which? The number one way I would say that you want to get that information would be to buy yourself the NET, the Net Bible. It is A excellent translation, a bit outdated now. I think it was done in about 1996. But uh, what's so great about the Net Bible is that it has 60,932 translators' notes that will tell you what's going on behind the scenes where there is a difference in the manuscripts that matters. Again, 99, I don't know what percent. Some huge percentage of differences in the manuscripts are completely irrelevant and can't even be seen once you translate into English. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the ones that do matter. These guys will let you in on it and tell you what's going on. And if you don't want to buy a print edition, you can just go to net.bible.org and access it online for free. Also, another really important resource that you might want to avail yourself of is written by Philip W. Comfort, and it's uh, called the New Testament Text and Translation Commentary. And so what Comfort did here, this goes back to about 2008, uh, what he did here was he took the standard work which is in almost exclusively Greek, called the Textual Commentary of the Greek New Testament by Bruce Metzger, and uh, he explained all of the information in lots more words and he didn't assume that you could understand Greek, so he explains things in English. Uh, so this book right here might be very helpful for you as well. If you have Greek skills, then uh, you really you really can't go wrong getting yourself a copy of Bruce Metzger's A Textual Commentary of the Greek New Testament. It's just the gold standard. It's kind of old now, but uh, it still remains the gold standard to this day because what it does is it tells you all the significant variants and why in the nestle Aland version, at least in the 27th edition, they went with the reading that they went with and how confident they were on that. So that's really helpful and um, you, you really just don't get that insight many other places. Uh, now let me, let me talk to you just a little bit briefly about this textual commentary of the Greek New Testament of Bruce Mesker and also the the other one by feel of comfort they they both have this to some degree what you're going to do is you 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 can find these places in your bible in the footnotes you're reading along and you say and it says some manuscripts read blah 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 okay then you whip out this book you look up that reference and they tell you what the manuscripts are and why they think this particular reading is the best this is really helpful information what's more in the Brutes mesker version he gives you a rating system and so what they did is they had a committee of scholars join together and go through all the most significant variants in the new testament and for each one they made a decision and then they put a rating on the decision as as to how certain the committee was so an A rating means the text is certain a B reading means the text is almost certain a C rating is the committee had difficulty in deciding which variant to place in the text and a d reading occurs only rarely only 9 times in the entire new testament and it indicates that the committee had great difficulty in arriving at a decision these ratings tell you how confident they were which manuscripts were correct in any given case so for example in the new testament there are 7941 verses and out of that this book only contains 378 variants that are rated at C or D. In other words, 4.8% of the New Testament there's any question about certainty. The other 95.2%, they're like, yeah, we know what it means. We know what it says. There's not a question here. So I don't want anybody freaking out. And it's only 0.6% where they give it a D rating. They're like, we don't really know which way. But these are the places where in your Bible you're getting those footnotes and they're saying other manuscripts read. And so we have the information. It's just a question of, how can we be sure which way to go in that 0.6% or that 4.8% if you want to include the C readings? Now, I realize that was a lot of information, but I'm convinced that the New Testament that we have right now and that is, is coming out in subsequent years as, as more of this work is done, in is what we already have, is actually better than what anyone had access to a thousand years ago or even 1,500 years ago. What I'm saying to you is that you could get in a time machine today, travel back 1,500 years in the past, and this Greek New Testament we have today is closer to the original, to the earliest initial text than what they had in the year 500. Well, Sean, how could that possibly... They were so much closer then, right? Yeah, but they didn't necessarily have access to all the different information then. If you lived in one place, you had whatever that one place had. Now we have access to information from all, a lot of different places, and especially we have access to information from the 2nd century, from the 3rd century, from the 4th century. We have hundreds of manuscripts from this period. So, yeah. Our, our New Testament is in better, I know it's the 21st century, but it's in better shape in the 21st century than it was in the 5th century. I don't know how far you can go back because eventually you're going to get to uh, you know, people that actually had really, really close Bibles to the, uh, the time of the Apostles. But uh, I don't want you to lose heart. I, our Bible's in great shape. It's, it's really incredibly preserved with so many different copies. But at the same time, this work does continue on, and we are refining and refining and refining, making these little adjustments, getting closer and closer to what the apostles originally had produced and then was copied down. Now, next time we're going to look, this is the wax on, wax off moment. Next time, we're going to look at two important corruptions in the New Testament that you need to be aware of and depending on what your background is, you might not even be aware of them because most modern translations don't have these anymore. But they're super important and they will very helpfully illustrate all this stuff about manuscripts and textual criticism in a really helpful way and that's 1 Timothy 3.16 and 1 John 5.7. So stay tuned for that next time in our continuing quest to understand how we got the Bible. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to check the show notes for this episode, either in your device or at restitutio.org, I do have a list of books I referred to in this episode, as well as some other links that you might be interested in. Also, I wanted to respond a little bit to a comment that John Bradley made on episode 334, Jewish Bible Translations. Uh, He had written the following. A note on the influence of Greek philosophy on New Testament Christianity via Hellenistic Judaism. The epistle to the Hebrews very much reflects Alexandrian, Greek, Jewish ideas and allegorization. It was most likely written by Apollos of Alexandria. Quote. Well, John, I partially agree with you on this. I also lean towards Apollos of Alexandria as being an author for the epistle to the hebrews but not because he's a hellenistic jew rather because alexandria was a center of learning and hebrews is written in a higher quality greek than most of the new testament and because he was someone associated with paul in the the ways of thinking that paul had via priscilla and aquila it's just as possible that it was barnabas uh especially with his priestly background or it could have been priscilla or aquila but if I had to pick between Priscilla and Aquila, probably Priscilla. Uh, So I think as far as the author of Hebrews goes, most scholars are generally going to say he's definitely not Paul. It doesn't have the Pauline introduction. It doesn't have his vocabulary or style, although it does have some clear Pauline phraseologies. But anyhow, leaving that to the side, I I do happen to mostly agree with your statement on that. Uh, Your statement about Greek philosophy Infiltrating New Testament Christianity because Hebrews reflects Hellenistic Judaism. I, I I don't see that at all. I'm sorry, I don't. When Hellenistic Judaism infects Christian theology, we get allegorizing away the entire law. There's no longer even a primary <laughs> meaning of it, as in uh, the Epistle of Barnabas and some of the other early Christian literature that we have, especially in the second century and the third century. I realize there is an allegory used in Hebrews, but there's also an allegory used in Galatians chapter 4. So that doesn't mean that it is indicative of Hellenistic Judaism. Allegorizing is a pedagogical tool, a teaching tool. Where I take issue with allegory is where one destroys the original meaning in order to create a new meaning using the method. Second of all, this idea that often gets trumpeted that The Jerusalem that is above is a reference to the pleroma of Plato, as in his Timaeus, where there's this realm of the forms and everything is idealized there and then comes into existence on the pattern of that when the craftsman does his work. I mean, look, that's just not what Hebrews says either. (laughs) It could just as well be that there is a heavenly throne room, a heavenly realm where God and his entourage are present and where he receives worship and that the earthly one is a pattern after that. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that Hebrews is Hellenistic. Maybe there's some other reasons that John or some others know that push this argument that Hebrews is a Hellenistic document. Uh, It certainly is written in the Greek language, I'll give you that. Uh, But it is a super Jewish epistle and uh, its concern is very much with the sacrificial system, with explaining how in the world Jesus' death can make sense of everything, how the old covenant relates to the new covenant. This is a thoroughly Jewish sermon, I would say, and a piece of literature aimed at persuading Jewish Christians not to go back into Judaism, but to stick with Christianity because Jesus is better than the angels, Jesus is better than Moses, Jesus' covenant is better than the old covenant. He is founded on better promises. He's got a superior priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, and so on. So that's my take on it. would love to hear more from you or anyone else that has more thoughts on that subject. Come on to episode 334, uh, Jewish Bible Translations, and leave your thoughts there. Thanks, everybody. If you'd like to support Restitutio, come on to restitutio.org. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.